Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Let's go. Ready? From the top. favorite shows on TV at 12 minutes of advertising. I can't get behind that kind of time. Eat quickly, drive faster, make more money now. I can't get behind that. My kids say, he said to me and I'm like, and he's like, and she's like, it's all he's all, she's all. I can't get behind that kind of like English. That'll be six to eight weeks before delivery. The rising oceans, the warming temperatures. All right. So, um, of course, that's William Shatner and Henry Rollins. And I just I like the energy level that it, it initiates somehow. So let me just tell you a little something about the genesis of this show, because it's kind of important. So as some of you know, I'm teaching, as I have in the past sometimes, an undergraduate course on 21st century political journalism. It's a seminar at Yale. And I decided, because college undergraduates warm to this topic, and because they get a lot of their news, or they have their news tinctured in significant ways, by political comedy, most of it airing post-11 p.m. Eastern time, that we would uh, devote a a segment of the class to it. And so obviously the main job is that they have to watch a lot of clips, which they don't mind doing. But I wanted some kind of analytical uh, perspective on it. And, And there's a lot of analytical perspective on it in terms of scholarly writing. Once it became clear that there was this kind of paradigm shift going on between from the days where it was pretty blunt and simplistic, you know, I mean, there were some exceptions like Dick Cavett, but for the most part, yeah, it was Clinton was fat or Clinton was horny, W was stupid. It just didn't get too much more interesting or subtle or textured or nuanced than that. And then suddenly it did, probably driven by Jon Stewart. But then all of his followers, his imitators and followers and, and mentees came along and did even more. And so there's been a huge amount of scholarship attempting to sort of see what it means. A lot of it is unreadable. For example, I found a paper titled, titled Perpiscuity as Discursive Ethic, John Stewart's Revival of 18th Century Rhetoric. I did not assign this paper to my class. Uh, I did find several really, really – I found two really good articles, each of which I, I you know, selected out and put in front of my class, only belatedly realizing they were both by the same person. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out to be the person who writes the most clearly and, and elegantly and eloquently about all this stuff. And so I thought, let's just have her on the show. You know, why am I why am I saving her only for my students? So joining us today for the entire show uh, is uh, said scholar, uh, Danigal Young, a professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware and the author of Irony and Outrage, the polarized landscape of fear, outrage and comedy on, in the United States. Her new book is wrong, how identity fuels misinformation and how to fix it. That will be a very important book for all of us to read because we have a big problem with that. But uh, Danigal Young, thanks so much for joining us today. 
Thank you so much, Colin, and thank you for that generous intro. I'm like, my face hurts from smiling. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's appropriate given the topic. So um, maybe we could begin with this. I think you would agree that somehow or other there was a paradigm shift, that we went from pretty simplistic, punchline-driven, stereotype-derived political humor suddenly to a situation where it was not unreasonable to say that the person on the screen making us laugh often felt it necessary to educate us about the topic to begin with so we'd know what to laugh about. Sure, yeah, I like that, that the context that you gave there. I would say a couple of things, though, that um, I don't know that it was an entirely new iteration that was introduced with Stuart, mm-hmm. much as sort of a throwback to what we witnessed in the late 50s and through the 60s, but it was more in underground, smoky comedy clubs and strip clubs, which is where (laughs) all that satire happened um, with folks like Lenny Bruce, right? Where they just didn't have the audience for it. And so once there are shifts in the information landscape, right, where you have tiny little outlets and media fragmentation and lots of different possibilities for programming, you have the ability to experiment and create new funky, fresh genres. And that really is what The Daily Show was from its inception in 1996. Um, but, but again, I think that it's actually quite similar to what we saw back in the late 50s and early 60s, but they just didn't have a darn television station that was equipped to do what they were doing at that time. Yeah, and I wonder about the market. So, I mean, uh, although Lenny Bruce has reattained some fame on the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you know, Lenny Bruce, who was, I, I agree with you, amazing, and would go through these riffs where he was basically sketching out Rousseau's social compact, you know, uh, but in a very, very comedic way involving feces. Uh, but you also had people like Mort Saul who would come out on stage with a newspaper. I mean, it was like right. just a signal to the world, oh, I'm a political humorous. So if you don't like this kind of thing, you can stop watching right now. Uh, yeah, it was, it was such a niche thing. But Exactly I, right. I mean, and so when you think about the fact that it was relegated to these coffee houses and strip clubs, it kind of makes, makes sense. I mean, in terms of selective exposure, there's nothing more selective than like choosing to go to a strip club to hear Lenny Bruce. Um, but, you know, when you get into the era of the networks and you're talking about the you know late 60s, 70s, 80s and the large mainstream audiences that these networks would draw, the genre of late night comedy was really supposed to be palatable for everyone. And it was supposed to be sort of a palate cleanser at the end of the day, but something that really brought you sort of laughter and levity, maybe not necessarily designed to illuminate and enlighten and, you know, frame issues. I think it had a very different mandate. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but then then this, I mean, I think we should say another thing, uh, Dana, which is that um, this change that we're talking about, or maybe a, a, a shift to something that, as you say, had existed once before, um, kind of seemed to coincide with a waning power of conventional and legacy journalism, layoffs in newsrooms, uh, uh, reductions in journalistic missions, uh, as some of the old models for delivering journalism weren't working as well anymore. Sure. And I think that you can't really tell the story of the shift in you know televised satire without telling the story of what happened to traditional journalism in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, both changes in journalism, I, I see it actually 
couple different sets of factors. It's kind of, you, you have to set sort of the backdrop, right? It's like deregulation under Reagan, corporatization of news, consolidation of media ownership, you know, mandates for, for news to get ratings, to make profit. All of that is really sort of a new sort of thing in the 80s and 90s. At the same time that we're witnessing drops in trust in media, in government, in large scale institutions, at the same time that in the wake of 1994 and the Republican revolution, you know, led by Gingrich, it's this shift at the elite level of politics towards hyper-polarized issue positions at the elite level, which ultimately trickles down into what we call affective polarization among the public, where each side hates the other side. And then on top of all of that, it becomes very difficult to please political media audiences because in that kind of environment, they perceive neutral objective information as biased against their side. So with all this stuff going down and new media technologies that make for experimental cable channels possible, it was this sort of birth of these genres. Right. Anytime there's real estate, um, I mean, bandwidth or, bro or or broadcast real estate, you see innovation. Uh, we saw it when there was FM radio. Suddenly you could do a lot of things that you couldn't do before. But that created this huge wasteland in AM radio, which is how you got Rush or Limbaugh and other people like that. <laughs> Nobody was using AM real estate anymore. So somebody else came along to use it. In the case uh, of television, yeah, once uh, once cable made all of this stuff possible, opened up umpty-umpt platforms when once there had been three or four, you, you got a different thing. And let's hear what that different thing sounds like. This guy is still, for my money, the master of this whole thing. If you, uh, if you think the seeding of democracy metaphor is slightly more tortured than many of the people we brought that democracy to, you ain't seen nothing yet. The seeds of freedom have only recently been planted in Iraq. But democracy, when it grows, is not a fragile flower. It is a healthy, sturdy tree. <laughs> and that tree is a family tree. It's a family man, for no man is an island except for the Isle of Man. Where is that? You know what? <laughs> it, I'm gonna go paint a cat. <laughs> anyway, the point is this. We spread our seed all over Iraq and it bloomed, baby! Until old Johnny Obama came in. And now you won't believe what's growing there. The seeds of 9-11s are being planted all over Iraq and Syria. You see what happened? <laughs> They've done swapped out our democracy seeds with the seeds of 9-11. Now, to your point, Dana, you know, starting that clip or picking up that clip with, if you think the seeding of democracy metaphor is slightly more tortured than many of the people we brought that democracy to, you ain't heard nothing yet. That's an incredibly linguistically complicated joke with kind of another joke sitting inside it. I mean, it's the kind of thing, I'm not even sure Mort Saul would have tried that. Um, Stewart is assuming an attentiveness and a level of interest and a willingness to understand understand something complicated that's way, way far away from the thing you were talking about before that was supposed to just please and cosset people as they were in the process of falling asleep. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure if you want to get into this yet, but what, what he was banking on was a level of cognitive processing or information processing on the part of viewers that um, 
seems like it actually landed. It mm -hmm. was there. I think that he was making assumptions about the kind of of cognitive goals and motivations of his audience. And um, based on the laughter and based on the reception, uh, I think he was right. He could count on the fact that they would be along for the ride. They would be engaged enough to be fully invested, to get the joke, make sense of the joke, and extrapolate from it in their own minds. Um, you know, if in terms of how humor is constructed, the, the classic late night joke of like the Leno and Letterman days, it, it has a formula and it's a formula that involves a missing piece that the audience then brings to the joke. So usually there's some kind of a, like a, a read in or, or some story about something in the news, right? And then there's a bit of a mismatch with some information that the comic says that doesn't seem to fit or match. And in order to make them fit together, it's the audience that has to make that leap. And usually when the audience makes that leap, therein lies the satire or the joke at the expense of some public official. So, you know, an easy one from back in the day would be, um, there was a joke about, uh, I believe it was about John Kerry throwing out the first pitch at a baseball game. I think this was a Leno joke. And, it, you know, um, John Kerry had a reputation at the time of being a flip flopper. Mm. Remember that one, yep. Colin, flip flopper. Okay. So the joke was like, oh, so, so Kerry threw out the first pitch at the baseball game today. It landed right on the fence. So, you know, the argument about who Kerry is is not made in the joke itself. We then have to understand why does that make sense? The ball's on the fence. Okay, Kerry's on the fence. He's always on the fence. He can't make up his damn mind. Um, therein lies the critique. What Stewart does is he takes that to a whole other level not even in terms of the, the complexity and the length of the segments, but in terms of what information has to be accessed from our memories and from our minds to be able to make sense of it. So in that clip you played, when he's talking at the end and he says, you see what they did? They swapped out the seeds of democracy with the seeds of 9-11. First of all, you have to understand what those two expressions would imply. Mm -hmm. Of all, you have to understand that while he's feigning incredulity, like, oh my gosh, they swapped the seeds. What you have to unpack is that he knows they didn't actually swap the seeds. They were the seeds of 9-11 all along. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, talk about mental gymnastics. I always speak of this in terms of mental gymnastics. And I am not a neuropsychologist, but when you look at the neuropsych studies of, of information processing in the context of irony, our brains are doing a whole lot of stuff. It is a lot of work. All right. We're going to take a quick pause here. We're going to come back. We have so much more that we want to talk about uh, today. And so, uh, and we've got uh, this guest, Danny Gal Young, uh, for the entire show. So stay with us. Watch the news. Think What you think? What you think? I don't care. This desk clean. Real clean. My band's lit. So lit. New shoes. Spanks under my feet. I know you're sleeping and dreaming on the East Coast, on the West Coast. We'll be waiting for ratings. You don't have to stay up, but our numbers will drop if you touch the remote. 
All right. So we're back with Danigal Young, a professor of communications and political science at the University of Delaware and the author of Irony and Outrage, the Polarized Landscape of Fear, Outrage and Comedy in the United States. Her new book is Wrong, How Identity Fuels Misinformation and How to Fix It. And what we're talking about here for the entire show today is how uh, the per- pervasive and I think, you know, somewhat unusual style of political econ- comedy that that characterizes late night these days uh, and characterizes the 21st century uh, is maybe changing the way that we think about things. Uh, And uh, there's a a lot to say about this uh, as we go along. But Dana, one thing that I wound up thinking about, and I actually came across a pretty good example of it as I was trying to get ready to teach this uh, seminar installment, was um, so in 2013, John Stewart and Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize winning economist and columnist for the New York Times, get into a fight. And the fight is about the fact that Krugman feels as though Stewart has just gone for a laugh on his show, uh, that uh, the, the thing in question was uh, uh, an idea that economists had about effectively minting $1 trillion coin as a way of addressing the national debt, and that, that Stewart just goofed on it as opposed to uh, actually trying to understand it and evaluate it as a question, which in the history of comedy you know, and I understand Aristophanes, Socrates, Swift, I mean, but generally in the recent history of comedy, it would be very strange to be criticizing a comedian for not adequately considering a complex matter of economics and evaluating on its merit, evaluating it on its merits as opposed for going for the big laugh. The, the ethos of most comedians is I'm going for the laugh. That's my only real allegiance is to comedy. But I think he was pointing up an interesting thing. I'm sorry this is such a wordy setup, but, you know, which is there's an implicit covenant now, I think, between John Oliver and Trevor Noah and Samantha Bee and their audiences that we're not just going to make you laugh. We are going to tell you to the best of our ability the truth, uh, often about fairly complicated situations. I don't know. First of all, would you agree that that compact implicitly exists? First of all, yes, it does exist. And we think about it in terms of verifiable and falsifiable reality. So in those moments when the late night host that you're talking about, um, and I can think of instances with Colbert and Samantha B, when they have perhaps told some kind of a story that was prefaced by or, or premised on information that was not demonstrably true, they have gone back and have issued apologies and mm. said that that turns out that that wasn't true. Because even though they are quote unquote fake news shows or news parody shows, there is an assumption that the information that serves as the sort of trampoline for their jokes is itself true. And if they you know, misrepresent that, I do think that that undermines their craft a bit because they're supposed to be considered to be these sort of truth tellers that tell us the things that we're not even willing to tell ourselves. They reveal truths about society and about the public. But in order to do that and have that trust, they we need to we need to know that the things that they're using as sort of that backbone, those pieces of information are true. I, I think it's interesting too to note that the you know the kinds of critiques that satire shows have received in terms of. Um, you know, they're not providing this information enough or that information enough is so fascinating because, you know, as Stuart himself used to say, like, if you're critiquing my show because you don't think it does enough to help the democratic process, then we're screwed. 
because I'm a comedy show, right? Like, are you issuing these same critiques to the mainstream press? Like, I'm just here to get laughs, which I don't know that that's 100% true. I think that that is the leading goal, I think, is to be entertaining and to make people laugh. Um, but of course, there is a dominant perspective that's underlying those goals, right? And it's generally a liberal perspective. I'll also say when folks try to critique satirists and say what they should do and what they're not doing, uh, it makes me super uncomfortable. I'm super uncomfortable. I, I have a, a dear friend who's an academic who was putting together a normative theory of satire and normative in the sense of what it ought to do from a democratic standpoint. And I was like, who's gonna listen to that? <laughs> Who, who's following the rules of what they ought to do? Have you met a comic? They, you tell them what they ought to do and they're like, well, I'm now going to do the opposite. Thanks, it's an opportunity to contradict. So I, I find that problematic, so much so that in my own work and in the work of others, we have found that when satirists use what we call meta humor to make fun of racism or sexism by performing the role of a racist or a sexist person, it turns out that that kind of meta humor often reinforces the very stereotypes it's seeking to mock or debunk. Um, and yet, even, even so, I would never say comedians should not use this kind of humor. It doesn't do what they think it does. They shouldn't use it. Instead, I say, I think maybe it would be helpful if comics understood that the psychology of their audience might render some people more likely to perceive this as literal and reinforcing their racist and sexist views. Let's make sure that they're armed with that information. But I'd never say, satirist is doing this wrong. This is what they should do. Uh, it just just strikes me as an odd, odd tone. Right. I, I think also the difference now is that it starts a conversation anyway. Uh, so the, with the kind of stuff you're talking about performatively, I mean, uh, these days, I think Trez Trevor Noah often uses one of his correspondents, uh, Desi Lydic, to pretend to be yes. a kind of uh, a Marjorie Taylor Greene type crazy conservative. She does these kind of direct to camera rants that are clearly absurd. But it, it, I guess if you were a big supporter of QAnon, maybe they wouldn't be that absurd, uh, absurd to your to the point that you're making. But one of the things that I think about when you say that is that back in the days of the Colbert Report, in which Stephen Colbert was doing this long con impersonation of a Bill O'Reilly type pompous, narcissistic, delusional uh, right wing host, he would do stuff that that person would do. And occasionally he really would get in a lot of trouble. And the one that sticks in my mind, because I think he got in the most trouble for it, that that fictional character did a really stereotypical Asian character named Ching Chong, yes. I think. Yes. And so Ching yep. Chong spoke in this kind of pidgin English and was really, you know, a hyper offensive Asian stereotype. Now, from Colbert's point of view, yes, because this idiot that he was pretending to be would in fact do something like yeah. that. But it, it touched off, as you probably know better than I do, a pretty enormous debate about whether something like that should be happening in any context. Correct. And even worse with that is that it was even more nuanced than that because the segment that he was doing with that character, which dated back to The Daily Show when he was a correspondent on The Daily Show. Um, once he was on the Colbert Report, though, the reason that he brought that back was because 
I forget exactly the FN, the, the FNL, oh, the NFL <laughs> um, had refused to like change the name of the Redskins. But at the time they were saying that they were going to like, I, don't, I forget, donate money to Native American causes or something. Mm -hmm. And Colbert was like this. I think the real Colbert recognized the bonkersness of that. And so he had an ironic bit in which he said, I'm going to start the Ching Chong Ding Dong Foundation for Cultural Sensitivity or whatever. <laughs> that was the joke. So the joke itself was a critique of the, the hypocrisy of this gesture by the NFL. Um, the fact then that folks said it doesn't matter how you're using it, it is offensive, was an important eye-opener. And there are other folks who have learned that same thing as well. I mean, Sarah Silverman often plays these meta comics, or she used to, I don't think she does anymore. Dave Chappelle used to use um, blackface in skits and have jokes that were making fun of racists by performing as racists. And one of the reasons that he left his show and left a contract behind was, um, as, he, as he describes it, because there were white people on his staff who were laughing in not quite the right way on set. Mm -hmm. Clear that that those jokes were hitting in a different way, and you know more recently when Colbert was on with Terry Gross several years back, and she asked about the Colbert Report, and you know was it going to be hard for him to leave the show and start something new, and he said he felt like he had to stop doing that character because he was afraid he was going to hurt someone, mm -hmm. and she was like, "What do you mean hurt someone?" And he explained that if he did not play that character exactly right and keep it super tight, all he was going to do was become the horrible thing that he was trying to illuminate and expose. I think he knew. I think he knew that, and times changed. And as we saw, the culture changed. You know, folks who maybe were underneath rocks with their white supremacy felt a little more confident coming out. The jokes that Colbert was making would would be very, very differently received if it were like two or three years ago. Right. I, he was smart to recognize where things were at culturally. So um, we're going to take a break here. But yes, I mean, anybody who's read Vonnegut's Mother Night and remembers that famous line, I think it's, we, we become what we pretend to be, so we must be careful what we pretend to be. I mean, there is a caution there. And if you look at the direction that, say, Tucker Carlson is going in these days, we've reached a point where it would really be hard, uh, harder even than it was then to parody uh, some of the things being said and have it be clearly parody. All right, we have to take a break. We've got this terrific guest with us uh, for the whole rest of the way. People are going to come and ask you to support public broadcasting and this show and this station and please do that and do it during our time slot it really helps All right. Just because that pledge break cut off in the middle, that's no excuse for not pledging. 1-800-584-2788. Or donate online at WNPR.org. Helps if you do it during our time slot. Uh, so I'm uh, working right now with that self-same uh, cat pastor that you heard there. She's the technical producer uh, and uh, of this particular show and many other things as well. Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this episode. I want to thank Kara Passaro, one of the many people who donated during that break. 
Actually, there really weren't many people. But thanks to Kara Pizarro from Hartford. Really appreciate that. All right. So we're going to go back to what we were talking about before. And, and we're going to go back to this t- terrific guest that we are so fortunate to have with us to get today, Danigal Young, uh, who is a professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware, the author of Irony and Outrage, the Polarized la- Landscape of Fear, Outrage, and Comedy in the United States. Her new book is Wrong, How Identity Fuels Misinformation and How to Fix It. All right. So, Dana, um, to say the obvious, most of the programs that we've been talking about and most of the comedians that we've been talking about, uh, whether it's Jon Stewart or the real Stephen Colbert uh, or Jimmy Kimmel or most of the people who work on Saturday Night Live or Trevor Noah, Samantha Bee, John Oliver, all of these people track from the center out to the left. Um, and although some of them are careful, and Stewart was always careful to make sure he was at least occasionally dishing it out a little bit to Democrats, it's pretty clear where the lean is. And so people often ask, and we will talk in just a second about the latest misbegotten begotten attempt to kind of deal with this disparity, but people often ask, why is, why is that and why is it, where's the conservative version of that? If these people are all center to liberal, where's the other part of it? Yeah, I started studying this in 1999 when I started at Penn for my PhD, and it was the same year John Stewart took over The Daily Show, so that was super handy yep. in terms of research agendas. Um, and I started studying the effects of exposure to late-night jokes on opinions, beliefs, knowledge, behaviors, and that same question kept coming up. Why are all these hosts liberal? And I was like, well, they're not. I mean, there's Dennis Miller. And that's all I had. You know, I was like, no, I, because that was too complicated of a question for me to unpack as sort of a young grad student. After 20 years of the same darn question, it was like, okay, I can't avoid this. It's everywhere. What the heck is going on? And, you know, the comics themselves will answer these questions about the sort of liberal nature of, of satire. And Colbert used to say it really is because Comedy is about challenging the status quo, which is not conservative. And I think there is something to that. Um, but I took this question in a different direction, and I, I looked at it through the lens of political psychology, which is an entire discipline dedicated to the understanding of the underlying psychological predispositions and even physiological systems that predict political attitudes and beliefs. And turns out liberals and conservatives are very different. Uh, I know that's shocking, (laughs) shocking, I know. Um, But especially when we're looking at social and cultural liberals and conservatives, we're talking about folks who differ in fundamental ways in terms of their information processing motivations and all for reasons that can be mapped onto how we think about interpersonal threat in our environment. Um, So long story short, and I can make it longer if you want in a minute, but long story short, uh, liberals have the kinds of um, information processing related traits that make them more likely to enjoy riddle solving and thinking for the sake of thinking and ambiguity and uncertainty. And conservatives are quite the opposite. They prefer efficiency and um, information that is very clear that does not, it's not through implication, it's didactic. Um, and these really, when you think about these things in the context of the most popular genres on the left and the right, in terms of political expression, you got Hannity over on the right, didactic, threat oriented, very clear, super efficient, as is Tucker Carlson. And then you got somebody like John Oliver, uh, completely inefficient, 
super complicated, layered, ironic, uses analogies, and his goals are often to make you laugh while he may be illuminating something. So this, this is what I unpack in irony and outrage. So there's so much to say here. I, we should say that, um, you know, yeah, Dennis Miller, although the reality of Saturday Night Live is kind of complicated. The person who's in charge of political comedy there is a guy named Jim Downey. He's Robert Downey Jr.'s brother. His political leanings have been uh, identified about eight different ways. I know and I know ranging from pretty far right to pretty far or at least left uh, of center. And I, I know for a fact, or I know at least from Al Franken's own assertion in his book, Giant of the Senate, that Franken was told he could never host Weekend Update because he was too identifiably liberal. It's a, So that's maybe one place where things were different, although I would argue things are are, are changing a, a bit now. Yeah, but it, but also think about why that is. Think about where it is. I mean, it is that is a network show. I mean, that's like the closest thing we have to what those late night shows used to be. Um, I think it still is trying to be middle of the road and, and have both sides and members of both parties enjoy the show. I think that there's a lot of economic and structural things there, <laughs> as much as there may be editorial decisions as well. Right. And I, I think that's true. And I think what they've done recently They've kind of made that a strength a little bit, at least uh, I think of two things in particular, the now kind of famous uh, episode of Black Jeopardy, where one of the contestants was Tom Hanks as a guy in a MAGA hat, where it turned out that a lot of his sense of paranoia and disenfranchisement and a need to sort of get away from the kind of mainstream solutions of things that had turned him into a Trump voter were very similar from to, the, yeah. to some of the paranoias and disenfranchisements expressed by both the host, as Keenan Thompson, uh, and the two uh, black, actual black panelists on Black Jeopardy. That one, and then the, I think it was the- Wait, cult, wait, yeah, yeah, you, feed, yeah. you forgot the best part of that. Okay, yeah, yeah, go ahead. The best part was how it ended, and right. the revelation at the end was that what does set them apart was that Tom Hanks's character was racist. Right. Right. Uh, I should. Well, and now the other thing was, I think, was after the cold open, uh, right after the election, that terrific uh, skit where they're all watching the election returns in, yes. in Brooklyn or someplace. And there's a bunch of white liberals sitting around and they just can't believe what's happening. And they're they're kind of, you know, recorrecting the, the results to see if there's any way out of this. And Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle are standing there and they are having a completely different set of reactions. And their reactions are kind of predicated on the idea of, oh, no. No, we don't see this as that big a shift. We're, we get screwed by everybody. So if you feel like this is the moment when you are finding out that America is racist and capable of electing a racist uh, as uh, as president, you're kind of late to the party. Um, yeah, like I thought we've that was been brilliant. Telling you this for years. Yeah. <laughs> we told you for years. Uh, we appreciate that you didn't think it was true. But <laughs> so so let's talk a little bit about what happens when conservative media self-consciously tries to get into the game. So this is happening right now on Fox. Uh, it is a program called Gutfeld! Exclamation point. It's hosted by Greg Gutfeld. I should say that I, I overlapped with Greg Gutfeld at one point in his magazine career. So I sort of knew him a little bit. He wouldn't have struck me at the time as somebody with a great career in, in transgressive comedy. Uh, I, I stand by that evaluation of him having seen the show. So, um, well, let's hear a little bit uh, of the first episode of the show, and then we can talk uh, uh, what's going on, about what's going on there. As for those late-night shows we're supposed to compete against, why bother? Who do they offend? The only time Stephen Colbert ruffles feathers is in a pillow fight. 
The definition of risk to Kimmel is dehydration from crying too much. <laughs> Fallon, that guy fawns more than a herd of deer. And I heard Seth Meyers and Trevor Noah ran off to be obscure together. <laughs> so let him be. They got the market cornered in calling Americans stupid. To them, it was never about Trump, it's Trump voters. It's not about guns, but gun owners. It's not just about destroying statues, it's anyone who thinks math is real. It's not the issue, it's the easy targets, meaning you. And also because the only way they make money is by making people hate each other. It's not enough to say respectful disagreement makes less money. You have to say it's racist. You know, well, there's so much uh, that we can say. Well, Dan, I'll just let you get us started here. There are so many ways in which in that first episode, he seemed not to understand some basic ideas about comedy. Yeah, it was. Here's the deal. Okay, there is sort of an algorithm that can be used to write jokes. And usually the way that especially if you're talking about satire, which is comedy that aims at a target, right, that makes some kind of advances an argument, aims at a target and is playful and is designed to elicit laughter. The magical sauce to do that is by creating, as I've said before, a little gap that the audience has to fill in. And because the audience fills in that gap themselves with the critique of the candidate or the policy or whatever it is, there's a magical effect of that. And my work has shown that because we're coming up with it on our own and we're filling in the gap, we are less likely to counter-argue or be annoyed by or offended by that content because our minds are so busy trying to reconcile what the argument is in the first place, right? It's kind of, it's, I mean, that humor is amazing. So amazing that years ago, people thought that satirists were like sorcerers. Like, how can they say this stuff and like not get killed by the king, you know? Well, Gutfeld would be killed by the king if he mocked the king, which he's not. Here's, here's what he gets wrong. He says that quiet part out loud. The part that we're supposed to fill in, mm -hmm. the part that the audience is supposed to bring to bear on the text, the part that is the critique of government or is the critique of, of culture, he says it out loud. So he might use a pun here or there, or he might use what's called scalar humor, which is the equivalent of, your mom is so fat that, blah, blah, blah. Notice with scalar humor, there's nothing to fill in. There is no missing piece. Right. He made a joke about how I'm as giddy as Kamala Harris trying to explain kids in cages. There's there is no no gap to fill in. Um, yeah, I think that there are moments in the show that have some capacity to be entertaining, like the panel itself, when he has other guests kind of talking about issues. I think that's interesting. Um, but because he is and has been socialized at a network designed through the aesthetic of conservatism, which is outrage, which is didactic and clear and efficient, because that is what they make and that's what their viewers want, that is still what he's doing. He's doing outrage, slightly snarkier, loaded with your, your mama so fat jokes, and it, do, it doesn't do that magical piece that requires us to fill in the gaps. I think also, I mean, this is a, a much more simplistic uh, explanation, but, you know, almost everybody that I've mentioned here on the show and that we've talked about here on the show 
are people who started out in comedy and learned comedy chops and learned the rhythms and, and alchemy uh, of comedy first and then tried to figure out how to do it about politics. Gutfeld has no such background. He worked in magazines. and I mean, he's a conservative journalist trying to do comedy. And, and at the beginning of that show, that first show, they, they start with this clip of Hunter Biden uh, doing an interview with CBS in which Hunter Biden makes fun of himself and he makes fun of his own abasement as a drug addict. And he talks about how he'd snored anything even stuff on the floor that he thought was cocaine. And he said, I probably snorted more Parmesan cheese than, than anybody else in, in history or something like that. And Gutfeld tries to make a joke about that. He doesn't seem to understand that Hunter Biden has already made a joke about himself. There's no, I mean, talk about piling on. He, he'd be piling yeah. on Hunter Biden's own joke about himself. Lots of folks have talked about the need for empathy in comedy and in, em, for empathy in satire. Satire is supposed to punch up. It's not supposed to punch down. And when your ideology is critical, perhaps, of people who are have less power in the existing social system, um, if you are critical of them, you are, by definition, going to be punching down. And that never hits quite right. Uh, I'd also say that what you said is fascinating about his background in um, journalism rather than comedy. You know, I have a, a chapter in my book where I look at two examples of the left and the right dabbling in each other's preferred genre and doing it poorly. The, you know, Fox News, it's not the first time that Fox News has tried to make a late night show. In 2007, they made the half hour news hour, which is the worst rated television show ever <laughs> until Greg Gutfeld. And then on the left, liberals just can't seem to really be competitive in the opinion talk radio space. So they created Air America. Well, what did they do? What did the liberals do to make their Rush Limbaugh? They took Al Franken and Janine Garofalo and made a comedy show on the radio. Yeah, no, I was actually approached by the company that was going to start that whole thing up, and I could tell right away they didn't get it. Dan Agal, we're, uh, Young, we're going to have to stop there, although I could talk to you for another two hours about this stuff. But meanwhile, her books are Irony and Outrage, The Polarized Landscape of Fear, Outrage and Comedy in the United States, and the new book, Wrong, How Identity Fuels Misinformation and How to Fix It. Thanks for listening today. Here come the people to ask you to give. Please consider giving during our little uh, time here. You'll have about three minutes, and you can really help us out. 